That was long. Um, I just couldn't see any way to break this up. It is one story, but it's one giant story. So thank you, Jim. You did a great job. Uh, we'd like to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, meet your teacher in the back there. And uh, while they go, let me open us in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, your word is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. All of it, all of uh, scripture that's inspired is like that. And Lord, it includes this travel journal. And so, uh, Father, as we turn to your word, as we um, seek to hear and understand what you have to say, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and minds? And I pray that we would see with eyes of faith what it is that Luke is telling us here. Uh, be with us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, real quick announcement. Um, Lisa and I just returned from the EFCA National Conference, the Free Church National Conference. Um, we're having a business meeting next month, and I'll tell you more about it there. I just want to make the announcement that we took a vote at that meeting to remove the word premillennial from our statement of faith. Um, we're not denying the return of Christ, but we're saying that it could be premillennial, it could be other versions. And so they changed premillennial to glorious. Um, there was some resistance to it. There was some, some discussion on the floor. Some of it was, was fairly coherent and, and you know, a genuine concern. Some of it was a little erratic. Uh, but the good news is that the resolution passed 79% uh, to 21%. So um, that's now the official position of the free churches. We're no longer a, a confessionally premillennial uh, denomination. If that doesn't make a lick of sense to you, God bless you. If that really doesn't matter to you one way or the other, God bless you. Um, if you're concerned about that, um, we're going to talk about it some more. Uh, we haven't done anything as a church because the rules of uh, how to change were churches could stay under the old one. They could switch to the new one. It was up to them. Uh, district superintendents and above have to adopt the new statement of faith. And so uh, that's where we're at right now. Just the technical stuff. I think what we might want to do is, is um, in the near future, do maybe a Sunday school class on eschatology and why does it matter and what does it mean? Um, what does it mean to be pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, those kind of things. So uh, at the next elders meeting, we'll discuss it and see if maybe we can't do something like that. Um, because I, people jokingly say, you know, eschatology doesn't matter and it doesn't, you know, it's all going to be okay. But I think eschatology does have a place. And so um, it may not be forefront, you know, the first thing you start out with, but I think it's important to understand what's it going to be like when Jesus returns. That's, that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> so um, just a, a little, little aside on that, uh, more at the business meeting. That's a plug for the business meeting if you missed that. Uh, so uh, like Jim said, this is a long chapter. It's a long story. But it moved pretty quick, didn't it? I mean, it was not, you know, we sat in this one place and did something. It was... Just if you pictured it in your mind what was going on, this, this ship was constantly moving. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of go through the story again and focus on three different things. Um, kind of summer, I'm going to summarize because I would like to go to the church picnic today. Anybody else? Yeah, me too. Uh, so what I'm going to do is kind of go through it and, and summarize in three basic kind of thought process, three categories. First of all, the mundane, then the miraculous, and then the man. So you can tell I'm a preacher because they all begin with the letter M. So the mundane, what I mean by mundane is not boring. Was this story boring? 
They're, they're driven, the, the seas are rough, they're, they're casting stuff overboard, all that kind of stuff. What I mean by the word mundane is it comes from the Latin for world, mundus, which is worldly. So this is the first part I want to go through is just the earthly, natural, normal thing that happened. And then we'll go back and we'll look at the miraculous that happens in the middle of all of this. And then we'll focus on how did Paul process this? What, how did he go through that? So that's, that's the plan. That's the game plan here. So it starts off that um, when it was decided that they'd sail for Italy. Now, you remember last week what had happened was Paul went up uh, on trial. Well, it wasn't even a trial. It's hard to describe what it was. But he appeared before um, um, Agrippa and before Festus and before the, the military leaders and all of that. And he made his case. He said, this is what I believe. Um, and the reason for that was because he had earlier appealed to Caesar. And so Festus said, I can't send him to Caesar without a letter explaining what's going on here. And I haven't a clue. I don't understand all this stuff. So that's where they were. They went through. They talked. Apparently, uh, Festus has written a letter to Caesar saying, my Lord, this is what's going on with this guy. And so now it's time to go. Um, a Roman citizen has the right to appeal to Caesar. And so they put him on a ship and they're going to sail him. And so that's what's happened. They've decided that they're going to go. Now, it mentions the Augustan cohort. Um, the word literally is sebaced uh, cohort. And this is a cohort that was known to be in the area. They were, they were stationed in Bashan, which is, guess where that is? Up in Agrippa's territory that he was the king over. So this is a cohort. This is a military unit under Agrippa's authority. And who did Paul just talk to? Agrippa. So isn't, isn't that amazing? Um, this actually happened. <laughs> uh, they wouldn't send one of the cohorts from, um, from Caesarea because they were not imperial cohorts. Uh, in other words, they were part of the empire. They were under the emperor's authority. And so they wouldn't do something as menial as transport um, prisoners. But the Augustan cohort would. And so that's who they picked. And so that's who they go with. They, and they turn him over to a man named Julius, who's the, the uh, centurion, the guy in charge of that cohort. And he takes Paul and a few more prisoners, and they hop on a boat. So can you go ahead and throw the, the map up? Um, this is the map, you guys, that I want you to know I feared the most in, in preaching through the book of Acts because it is so busy. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but I tried to make each map as just slim down and, and narrow as possible without a whole bunch of stuff in it. And this one gets a little busy. So let me just walk through. This is where we go. You get a, a clue for it. So we're down here in Caesarea. And they put him on a ship and they sail to Sidon. And what's nice is, is the centurion, uh, Julius, likes Paul, apparently. He, he sees him as a friend. And so he says, OK, while we're here inside and just kind of hanging around, waiting for the next boat, uh, or waiting for the ship to be laden and unladen and all that, you go ahead and talk to your friend. So he actually leaves. He goes and he meets with his friends. I mean, that's pretty generous. But Paul is not in danger of running away. He's not like an escaped prisoner. So they're inside for a few days. And then it says that they sailed um, south of Asia. So they sail along the coast here, Cilicia, Pamphylia, and they come to this place, Myra, which is in the province of Lycia. So Myra is an actual place you can go look at. Um, there are photos of it. You could travel there and you could see that. This is a genuine, real concrete place that exists. So they're in Myra. Then they're trying to sail around. They're hoping, I think, to come up this way and up to Italy. But when they get to Sindus, they can't make it. The winds are just too contrary. 
Now, in those days, those boats didn't have the ability to tack. And what I mean by tack is modern boats, when they need to sail into the wind, they will cut back and forth like this into the wind. That's called tacking. So they'd sail this way for a little bit, and then they would tack, and they would go the other direction. And that way, they're able to sail into a strong wind. Well, back in those days, they couldn't do that. They didn't have the rigging necessary to, to be able to tack, and so they kind of were driven by the, the wind. So they're trying to make it up here, and they can't, so they get pushed away, and they come down to Crete. Um, Salomon there is this little bit at the tip. By the way, Lisa and I spent vacation there one time, so I know that place exists too. Um, but that's that little tip right there. So they come there, and then now they're on what Paul or what Luke describes as the lee of Cyprus. And what they mean by lee is the, the, the land would block the wind. And so this, this would be a little bit calmer. As the wind is going over the island, they'd be able to sail in that calm part of it. And so they come under the lee of Crete, and they make it to this place called Fair Havens, which is right next to Lycee, um, just right down there at the bottom of the island. That's how far they've made it. And now here's the problem is it says that um, even the fast was already over. What is that talking about? Well, the fast is the Day of Atonement which is typically, depending, since it's a lunar calendar, it varies, but it's usually somewhere between September and October. Uh, in 57, it was like October 5th. And so why does, why does Luke mention this for us, that the fast is already over? Well, he mentions it for a very good reason. You don't sail these waters in the winter. It's too tumultuous. There's too many storms and stuff. So the idea is, as we're drawing into the fall and into the winter, you don't want to be out at sea you want to find a good harbor to, to winter in. And that's mentioned in the text is, is we can't winter here in Fairhaven because the winds would be coming up and would be bumping into it. And, and, and um, the, the harbor wouldn't be a safe place to dock. Uh, so what they've got to do is they decide, they take a poll. It says that the majority decided that they would sail around and come up here to Phoenix. Phoenix is this little point over here on the side. And the nice thing about Phoenix is at the time, the port faced in two different directions, northwest and, and southeast, or did I get that backwards? In any way, it, it faced in two different directions at the time. And so you could pull in there, and that would protect you from any of that inclement weather that might be coming through. It's a great place to winter. Um, around 456, if I remember right, there was an earthquake, and now that's all filled in, and, and you can't do it anymore. But at the time, that would have been a perfect place. So here's the plan. We'll set sail from Fair Havens. The wind has died down. We're under the lee of uh, Cyprus or of Crete, so we should be able to do this. This will work. We'll just hug the coast, and as we come around the coast, then we should be able to swing into that harbor before it gets bad. Now we know Paul said, "You guys don't do this. This is a bad plan." Um, but they won't listen to him. Instead, the centurion listens to the pilot, the, the person who steers the boat, and the owner of the boat, or the captain. He listens to them and they go, all right, well, the rabbi said that we shouldn't do this, but the professional sailors, yeah, maybe we should do that. And so he listens to him. It's not that he didn't like Paul. We already saw him release Paul. So, you know, that kind of makes sense. The problem is when they got to this little island called Kata, um, the wind came down. There's a huge wind came up over the hill on, on Crete. These, these cliffs, I think, are something like 6,000 foot cliffs, really huge cliffs. The wind whips up over top and it came down. Now what happened was the air, when it hits Crete, warms up. The sun is shining on it. We're pretty close to the equator. Um, the sun is shining on it, it warms it up. So now there's this warm air mass. 
and the wind comes down, when the water or when the air is down by the water, the water cools it because evaporation happens. And so you get cooler, denser air down here, hot, warm air up here, which is lighter and more um, not as dense. And when it comes over and those two fronts meet, it's terrible. As a matter of fact, the word that's used there is where we get the word for typhoon. So this is not just, it was really windy. Um, you know, you could practically picture a funnel cloud forming, and this is what hit them when they got there. So there's no way they're going to make Phoenix. They've just been driven off. As a matter of fact, it's so bad that they have to bring the boat up. Now, what would happen is the ship, ship and boat, we're not sailors, they're the same thing, right? Go tell a sailor that's a nice boat you've got and see how fast he takes before he explains you the difference. The ship is the big ship, the sailing vessel that they're in. The boat is a smaller, like a rowboat that would be attached to it. So you could go to shore and back or those kind of things. So when they got out and they started sailing, there was no reason to keep that thing tied up on the deck, taking space. They would just drop it in the water and let it trail behind. So as the storm starts hitting, they're in danger of losing the boat. So they haul the boat up and they fasten it and they begin to batten down the, the, the ship. It says that they couldn't face the, the storm. The, the weather is so horrible. What's interesting is back in those days, they used to paint eyes on the front of their ship. It says they couldn't keep their eyes into the storm um, because they didn't have the ability to attack and, and, and to face that. So eventually they just go, you know what? We're sunk. Just let the wind drive us and hopefully the, the storm will, will, um, will peter out eventually and we'll figure out where we're at from there. But they just basically gave up control and they're driven. Now, I have a nice straight line here that goes right to Malta. Uh, I'm pretty sure it didn't look like that when they were sailing. I'll bet it was all over the place. They have no idea. As a matter of fact, it says they hadn't seen sun nor stars for days. Now, back in those days, that's how you navigated, is you would measure where the sun was, you would keep track of the stars. And if I can nerd out for one little quick moment, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of landing on the moon. That's how, the, that's how they got to the moon was they would pop out a telescope and look at the stars and figure out where they were based on the stars. Isn't that something? It worked back then. It worked 50 years ago. It still works. The SR-71 had, a, had a, um, a sextant built into the backbone so it could figure out where it was. It's just a great way to navigate. But they can't. They lose that ability. The, the sun and moon are gone. They have no way to tell where they're at now. And so they're just driven. And so they just keep sliding around. They keep going. Um, they did lower the gear. And I like Jim read the NAS, and it said it lowered the sea anchor. And what the sea anchor was is it would drag out of the back. It was just kind of a big, heavy thing. And it would try to keep the boat from shifting all over the place by the waves. It would just give enough drag to hopefully keep it straight. So they lower the sea anchor, and they're, they're hoping to just ride this storm out. Um, but eventually, it gets so bad that uh, they have to do a couple of things. They undergird the ship. So what that means is, and this was a common sailing practice, when the storm got bad, there was a danger that the ship might begin to pull apart. So they would run out uh, big ropes off the stern, or probably off the bow, and then pull them back. And when it got a certain distance along the, the hull, they would then tie it and try to make them as tight as, as they possibly could. And this would be to hold that hull together because they're getting buffeted really badly. And so they tied that on, and now they release the gear. They tackle all the stuff on the deck they just throw overboard. And it says they threw it overboard with their own hands. What Luke is trying to paint a picture of is professional sailors chucking the gear that they need to control the ship by hand overboard. The situation is desperate. 
It's only getting worse. The storm is not lighting up at all. And so it finally says, all hope and abandon of being saved, they're lost. They don't have control of the ship. The ship's in danger of breaking up. And so they're, they're, they're just about lost. They do come in sight of an island, having a clue what island it is, but they see a nice bay that they can slide up in. And if they can get a good running start, they could run that ship right up onto the, the beach. So that's the, that's the plan, is they're going to try to rush up there and just pew, right up on the beach, and then you can just hop off and run to shore and, and find some shelter. doesn't work. There's a big reef that they can't see. Now, this is probably good news that there's a big reef, because what reefs tend to do is if you look out at the sea, you see these big, huge waves coming in, crashing in. Those reefs tend to dampen those waves out. Suddenly, those big waves will crash and slow down. So if they can get into the, the, um, into the shore, then the waves will be trapped out at sea by the reef, and maybe they can get in. So they crash on the reef, and they're stuck. But the reef may be actually what permits them to get from the, the stuck ship to the shore and survive. That's the, the hope, anyway. So some sailors begin to uh, lower boats. And we're going to go put an anchor on the bow. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. And Paul says, look, if they leave, none of us will be saved. He looks to the soldiers. you got soldiers and you got sailors. Military units never get along, by the way. It's, it's an inner... inner um, uh, partnership rivalry. Um, the sailors are about to go take, take off. They're going to hop in the boats and try to get away. And the, the soldiers say, no, if you leave, we're all dead. Poof, they cut the ropes. There goes the boat. We are now without a boat. So let's run aground and see what we can do. They get stuck on that, on that uh, reef, and the waves are so strong, it actually begins to break up the back end of the boat. And so the, the um, centurion says, here's what we're going to do. Hop in the ocean and swim. Hopefully you can make it to shore. Paul tells them, take some food. It's been 14 days. We've been just struggling. They probably couldn't keep much down because the waves were so bad. Take some food, and then we'll go do this. And so that's what they do. They eat, and then they throw the, the stuff overboard, and then they're going to head out. They're going to be ready to swim. So those who can swim do. Those who can't, they grab a piece of floatsome or you know, a plank off the board or something, and they jump in the water. And what Luke tells us is all 276 persons are saved. They arrive on the shore. They're, they're alive. So that, my friends, is the mundane. And, and what I mean by that is this is, there's nothing magical about this, is there? There's no sea monsters eating people, and there's no angry gods hurling lightning bolts or anything, is there? The way Luke tells it is just as matter-of-fact as it could be. It sounds like he picked up his, his journal and just reported what he had read. As a matter of fact, some of the terms he uses um, were, were nautical terms. You notice I said that it was the Northeaster was that wind that came down. Jim called it the Euro Aquilo. Uh, it's, that's probably a better transliteration of the word. What it was, was it was two words mushed together, one in Greek and one in Latin. It was not the technical term for it. It was probably the words that the sailors would use. As these two cultures would bubble together, they would kind of mush words together. And so that was probably how they talked. He talks about sailing under the lee of this and that. He talks about the tackle and the mainsail and the foresail and all that. Luke has been hanging around with sailors, and he's writing this stuff down. It's very mundane. It's very earthly, very natural. It, it's what happens. As I was reading through this, I thought, you know what? This sounds more like Robinson Crusoe 
than it does the Odyssey. Robinson Crusoe, he, he is very technical in all the, the sailing details that he gives, and he's writing as a non-sailor. He's, he's kind of learning. As a matter of fact, at the beginning, he's in a shipwreck once, and then he goes back out to sea and gets in a second shipwreck. So he's learned a lot in the meantime. And, and Crusoe does the same thing, very concrete, very down to earth, trying to make it real. But the Odyssey, the Odyssey is, is a, a supernatural work, right? It is a, it's a story of gods and goddesses and heroes and everything. And, and it sounds extremely different than the way he wrote. Listen to this little clip. This is just one little piece that I liked of the story, so you got to listen to it. Um, it's the story of Odysseus. He's landed on an island, and the goddess Circe is telling him about the perils that he faces. This is what it's like to sail on the sea, according to Homer in the Odyssey. So Circe says, in the center of this cliff face is a dark cave facing west toward Erebus. On the path your hallow ship must follow, glorious Odysseus, if you listen to my advice. Even a man of great strength could not shoot an arrow from your vessel as far as that arching cavern. Scylla lives there, whose yelp, it is true, is only that of a newborn whelp. Yet she is a foul monster who not even a god could gaze at with pleasure. She has 12 flailing legs and six long, thin necks, each ending with a savage head with a triple row of close-knit teeth masking death's black void. She is sunk to her waist in an echoing cave, but extends her jaws from that menacing chasm, and there she fishes, groping eagerly along the cliff for her catch. Dolphins and seals, or one of the greater creatures that Amphritite, ah, I even spelled it out phonetically and I still blow it. Uh, this one goddess who makes sea creatures breeds in countless numbers in the moaning depths. No crew passing by in their ship can boast it has ever escaped her unscathed, since each head snatches a man, lifting him from the dark, proud vessel. Odysseus, you will notice the other cliff is lower, not a bow shot away and a great fig tree with dense leaves grows there. Under it, divine Charybdis swallows the black waters. Three times a day, she spews them out, three times a day, like sucking them back again. No one, not even Poseidon, could save you from, her, from destruction if you were there when she swallows. Hug Scylla's cliff instead and row your ship safe, past safe swiftly, since it is better to mourn six men than your whole crew. Does that sound anything like what Paul just told us? They're sea monsters with six heads and three rows of teeth, and they gobble people up, and it's horrible. And Paul says, well, we ran into a rock. We got stuck on a reef. We got, the storm came up. So this is what I mean by the mundane. It, it, this storm, this whole sailing thing is extraordinarily natural. It is explainable by all natural phenomena. There's nothing miraculous and, and God-laden with this stuff. It just happened. And Luke tells it in a very natural, very mundane, this is how sailing goes way. So let me go back and, and kind of walk through and just show you what I mean by this is a natural event. Verses 9 and 10, when Paul says, look, I perceive that, that we're going to lose if we do this. Even a rabbi knows you don't sail this late into the fall. This is a natural thing. Now, Paul has sailed these waters a number of times. He's been back and forth from Jerusalem to Corinth. He can look at this and go, look, I'm a rabbi, and I can tell you this isn't a good idea. The natural course of things is going to destroy us. When they get to Fairhavens, they, they look at this and they go, this is not a good place to winter. 
Because in the winter, the storms are going to rush into this harbor and they're going to trash our boat. So a better thing would be uh, we can do this if we sail around and get into a harbor that's facing the other direction, then we'll be safe. Because that's what happens. It's not like this was, you know, the skies parted and an angel yelled, go to Phoenix. It was just, this is how naturally things work. We need a better harbor. The weather phenomena that struck them when they got to Sindus was so well known, it has a name. It's not something that never occurs. It's a named phenomena. You know what that wind is? That's called the Northeaster. That's what that's called. Because we have run into those before. We have seen this happen before. It's very natural. Undergirding the ship made sense because ships sometimes get trashed about and could possibly fall apart. And so sailors have figured out tying ropes around them is a good idea. It's a natural way to approach it. They take soundings as they're sailing. They take soundings. That means they would lower this thing into the water and they would see how, down, how far down the bottom is. And so they take a sounding and it's 30 fathoms and they take another one and it's 20 fathoms. They go, you know what that means? It's getting shallower. This is a natural phenomenon. They, they, they know when you get into shallower water, there's a danger that there will be a rock or something you're going to run into. So they, they recognize this. They're using natural, regular, everyday sailor techniques. Nothing supernatural, no, no um, funny stuff going on. When they do that, they take the soundings. You know what? They fear the rocks. Verse 29 says that they were afraid there might be rocks, not sea monsters. They were afraid of rocks, not, not Scylla with her many heads going to come out and eat them up. It was rocks they might run into. So the idea is we're going to run ashore and we're going to hit this, this shore and that's where we're going to be. But they run into a reef right where a reef should be, right there at the entrance to the, to the bay. That's where a reef would form. That's a natural phenomenon. And then they hop in and they swim or they ride the debris because of that storm break gave them enough room to get there. It's, it's all very natural. This is a very natural way that this could happen. That's the picture that Luke has painted for us. This is how sailing goes in the, middle, uh, in, in the Mediterranean. This is, this is what happens. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, I, I, I wanted to say, it mentions that they sailed around, <clears throat> they looped around the Adriatic Sea. Now, if you look, the Adriatic Sea is way up here. That's what we call the Adriatic. So if they were way up there, how'd they get past this and not wind up hitting Italy? Um, I just wanted to announce, or, uh, explain what that was. The Adriatic Sea was the a Sea of Adria. We call this the Adriatic. Back then, in those days, it included what we called the Ocean Sea and the Northern Mediterranean, this, which is right where they're at. So. That's our picture. That's our natural way of doing things. This is how Luke tells us our story. It just happened. It happened in explainable ways. And yet, and yet, Luke drops right in the middle of this, a supernatural event, without blinking, without telling us that I'm about to turn this into a fairy tale. He simply reports it as he reported that they put ropes around the ship to hold it together, as they reported the ship being broken up by the seas. By the way, an angel appeared. He doesn't mince it. It's, so right in the middle of the mundane, we get the miraculous. Right in the middle of the natural, we get the supernatural. And here's how, he, how it's announced in verses 21 through 26. This is how he reports it. An angel appeared. An angel. Uh, a supernatural being who can suddenly be on a ship in the middle of a storm and suddenly be off the ship in the middle of the storm. He can't appear. He's an angel. He's not a demigod. He's not a nymph. 
He's an angel. He is a spirit being who can make himself visible and can make himself invisible. This spirit being, this spiritual being, suddenly appears in the midst of the storm, and he's there. Now, he's not just any old angel, angels wandering around and they do their own thing and that kind of stuff. Paul says he is an angel of the God to whom I belong. Now we're introduced to not just this angel, now there is a God, singular, a God, the God whom I belong. This angel is not independent, he has a boss, and his boss has sent him. There is one God, and he dispatches angel to talk to his people sometimes. Paul belongs to this God. God sent this angel to Paul, and he sent him with a message. So God has angels that he can send. God has people who he sends angels to. That's the picture we're getting of this supernatural thing. This God, or this angel who, uh, um, who is from the God to whom I belong, he said. He communicated to Paul. He didn't beam it into his head. He didn't act out pantomime. He didn't draw pictures on the walls. He said, he spoke. So in our natural world, which has things like storms and northeasters and, and, and a bad idea of sailing in the winter, in this natural thing, there's this supernatural that we can't see all the time, and it can communicate to us. The supernatural can actually come and speak to us in a meaningful way. But one of the big uh, science fiction tropes that you'll see is when we run into another species, they're so advanced they can't speak to us because they are so otherworldly, so advanced. Not so with the supernatural being. He can come and he can speak to Paul. He can give Paul a very clear message. This is the message that I'm giving to you from your God, Paul. And he tells him, you will stand before Caesar. So the message that this God has sent to him is that he will stand before Caesar. He can appoint one of his own people to meet even one of the most powerful people in the world. This God can say, Paul will stand before the most powerful man in the world because I've ordained it, because he's mine. And I'm going to send an angel to tell him that. This God then is above all earthly powers. There's, there's no king, there is no ruler, there's no potentate who this God cannot say, you'll stand before him because I've appointed it. He is sovereign over that. And then the angel says, God has granted to you all who sail with you. Here's the good news, Paul. You're going to survive because you have to go stand before Caesar. Plus, God has granted you all those who sail with you. I cannot, if I wanted to, I could not grant you the rights to the entire Beatles library so that you would make all the money off any Beatles song. I can't. I, don't, I can't grant that to you. I cannot grant you a room in the White House. I don't have the authority. I don't have the power. I can't grant you an exemption from paying taxes. I, sorry. I can't do that. I can't grant you those things because they're not under my control. They're not under my power. Do you hear what God did? God granted to Paul all these lives. Now, we know there are only probably three believers on this vessel. Paul, Luke, and Aristabus, Aristarchus, rather, Aristarchus. There's probably the only three believers. So they're God's people. But all the pagans are in God's control. They're all under God's authority. God can grant them to Paul or he can grant them to the sea. He has that authority. He's not limited to only his people. 
So just like Paul, God is able to grant Paul the ability to go talk to Caesar, he grants the life of these people. The life of all people are in this God's hands. This is what we're getting from this. And, and then Paul says, it will be exactly as told. He believes, he honestly believes that everything is going to be happening exactly as he was told because God is not a good guesser. God didn't say, well, you know, like Paul looked at the sea and said, hey, this is probably a bad idea. And God went, well, I think you might wind up with Caesar. Nope. God doesn't speak in those terms. You, it has been appointed for you to go talk to Caesar. I have granted you these lives. So Paul looks at this and he says, if this is the kind of God that I serve, then I have every good reason to believe all of this is going to happen. Now, if this is true, if God's above all earthly powers, could God not have stopped the storm? Couldn't he have just ended the storm and said, you know, there's nice fair wind. It's going to take you on a leisurely cruise right to Rome. He could. Mark chapter 4 talks about after the feeding of the 5,000, they hop in a boat and they're sailing across, or across the, uh, the Sea of Galilee and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling. Sound familiar? But he was in the stern, Jesus, asleep on the cushion. And when they woke him and they said, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So when God sent this angel, couldn't he have just said to the storm, peace, be still, and had to go glass? He could have, but he didn't. He could have saved only Paul because Paul is the only person on this boat that's got a promise from God, you will stand in Rome, you will be in Rome. God could have miraculously somehow saved him and him alone, but he didn't. He could have said, I'm not having anything to do with any of you, left them all to their own fate, but he didn't. Instead, he chose to save the crew complement, the, the passengers, and not the cargo. He, he chose to save the people and not the ship itself. And so when Paul looks, he says, I believe it's going to happen exactly the way that God has said, because my God is sovereign over these things. My God is in control. He can do those things. And this is the supernatural that's dropped right in the middle of this natural story. So it sounded at the beginning like Paul's travel journal, and suddenly we get this important lesson in theology in the middle of the storm, right in the center of it. And Paul reports them both as if they were just a matter of fact. We drop the sea anchor and an angel appeared. Boom. That's it. So this is, this is that idea that I've talked about before. I'm stealing from Carl F.H. Henry, the first editor of uh, Christianity Today. He talked about having a supernaturalist worldview. And so that's what's going on here is this, this is a supernaturalist worldview. And so the question for us is how does a supernaturalist live in a natural world? So look at what Paul says. We'll go back and we'll look at the four things. Paul speaks four times. Uh, we'll kind of pick those up. So the first one in verse 10, he says, I perceive that this is going to end badly. It's not a supernatural revelation. It wasn't, I have been given a vision of an angel. He, he hasn't. He hasn't talked to, to a divine being in quite a while. Jesus appeared to him probably two and a half years earlier, and now he sees an angel. That's it. He doesn't get a visitation every night from some uh, supernatural being explaining stuff to him. So when Paul looks out at the situation he's in, he says, you know, the time of year is wrong. The winds don't feel right. You don't sail like this. Nobody else is going out of this port. He says, sirs, I perceive, I see with my eyes 
that this is going to end poorly. Now, think about that. Paul has been told by Jesus himself. Jesus stood next to him and said, as you testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify in Rome. And yet, Paul doesn't stand and look at this and go, well, I perceive that the storm is pretty bad and you all are going to be toast, but I know I'm safe because God told me I'm going there. He, he doesn't get flippant about it. He doesn't get, you know, I'm all triumphalistic about it. He says, look, you guys, if we head out, we will die. That's, that's the picture we have here. And that's not doubt on his part. That's not him waffling. He's looking at the natural situation and saying, by all indications, we're going to die if we sail. I perceive that. I can see that with my eyes. But he doesn't panic. There's no panic in his voice. There's no pleading. There's no, oh gosh, please don't go. I don't want to die in the sea. He simply announces this is the way it's going to be. So he has what's, what I call a supernaturalist worldview. There is the nature. There's nature. We live in nature. We live in the natural world. It happens. If you get in your car and you drive, you will arrive at a place. That's naturally what happens. So there's the, the supernaturalist takes the natural and then the other, the more natural. If you are, let's say, an ah naturalist, there is no nature, that could probably be described as being an animist. And so the way an animist, an awe naturalist, would look at the situation is he would say, well, the spirit of the winds has been angered at us, or the spirit of the waters is now turned up at us, or the spirit of the, the, uh, the waves has come against us. There's no natural explanation for this. It's not a low-pressure zone met a high-pressure zone and caused this, this whirlwind. It is spirits control everything. That's called awe naturalist. Or I just made that word up. And, and I might patent it, we'll see. It's all naturalist. There is no nature, there's only spirit. But we live in a, in a world that's probably only naturalist, a materialist world. The only explanation for all of this is natural. Well, of course there was a storm. There was a high pressure zone, met a low pressure zone out over an open sea, nothing to disrupt it. It caused this great big storm. Of course, it, it always works like that. We don't need a God stirring his fingers in that to make a storm. It just happens. And the, the supernaturalist can go, well, yeah, it does. But that doesn't explain everything. What about Paul's visit with an angel? Well, you know, the poor guy was, was in this ship being tossed about in the seas, probably seasick as anything delusional, hadn't eaten for a while, scared to death, and he had this vision in, in, in the day. He just all of a sudden saw an angel appear because he was hoping against hope. It's, it's all explainable naturally. If I ever have that kind of delusion that comes this exactly true, I would tempt, be tempted to say that probably wasn't a delusion. My delusion would be that I get a jetpack and I sail off the ship. That would be delusional. The reality is Paul is told this and every single thing happens exactly as he reported it. So the, the materialist, so the, the only naturalist view doesn't work here either. There's more going on than this. So the supernaturalist has to embrace both. We don't have to find an angel under every rock. We can actually speak about the laws of physics. We, we can look at the way things work and describe them in natural terms. Bob Kemple is an engineer. He, he worked on all kinds of airplanes. He built things. He sat down with the physics and a slide rule, and he figured out how all this stuff worked. And yet, 
He believes that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. He believes that there is a God. He doesn't think that God had to move the air molecules. You can be a supernaturalist where you believe in the natural and you believe in the supernatural. It's possible. And by the way, in my opinion, and I've read some other places, it's only a supernaturalist worldview that will allow us to have science. If everything is a spirit, you don't go study the trees. You might offend the spirit. You don't go measure the water flow through the, through the creek because you might offend the creek god. You, you don't watch the weather patterns because they're a god, they're a spirit, they're moving it. And so there's no possibility for what we would consider modern science to flourish. And if you look at it from purely natural perspective, first of all, there's nothing. One Thursday afternoon around three, it exploded for no reason. And so out of this massive explosion, we get all this order. If the, if the narrative of the universe is it just blowed up, then we should look out and expect utter chaos. We should not expect order. The supernaturalist comes along, the Christian worldview, the supernaturalist view comes and says, there is a nature, God created it. He created that on purpose. And so when we get a telescope and we poke it up in the sky and we look at Jupiter, who by the way was just on its closest approach to Earth in a long time, and we see four Galilean moons, we expect the next night to poke that, that telescope up and see the same thing again and watch those four Galilean moons move because they're circling that planet. We expect that. Why would we expect that if it's all based on an explosion? Because the supernaturalist says because there's an intelligence behind all of this, because it was designed with a purpose, that a God made all of this so that he might be known. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. This is the supernaturalist worldview. That's what chapter 27 has just presented to us. It's nuts and bolts, folks. It's row, it's, it, you row, you turn away from the, the wind, that kind of stuff. And God is involved in this, and God is making all this happen. So the first thing he says is, I perceive. The second thing he says in verse, chapter, or in, in, um, verse 25 is, I have faith in God. So the supernaturalist understands the weather patterns and the typhoon and yet believes in God. And Paul is fully aware that they will face this peril, and he doesn't panic because he had Jesus stand next to him. What about you and I? Not many of us have Jesus show up and stand next to us and say, this is what's gonna happen. So how can we be sure of this? How can we enter into this supernaturalist worldview with confidence? Well, Jesus himself said it in John chapter 20. After Thomas says, I'm not gonna believe until I see him myself, Jesus appears, says, here, check it out. Put your hands in my hands in my side, it's me, it's my physical body, I've risen from the dead. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, the supernaturalist. He is, he is very materialist at first. Unless I stick my finger in the hole in his hands, I'm not gonna believe. Then he becomes a supernaturalist, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It is a blessed position for us to not see the risen Christ and to believe. You are blessed by doing that. Paul says, I believe in God. He saw Jesus raised from the dead a couple of times. We haven't seen him, and yet we are blessed because we believe in him. The faith in God, by the way, is not merely acknowledging, yes, God exists. Um, that's called theism. 
Um, and then various versions of theism will be deism. If God is not involved with creation, then you know, that's a deist position. That's base theism. It's just saying, I believe that there is a God. That won't save you. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. However, even the demons believe and they shudder. So to just say, I believe that God exists is not faith. When Paul says, I believe, he acts on that belief. And that's what happens next. His next statement is chapter, in verse 31. He says, unless these men stay on this ship with us, you centurion, you Roman soldiers, you cannot be saved. Why is that? Because God gave Paul all of those lives. They need to stay with Paul. They've, they're attached to Paul. What well, Paul's well-being is their well-being. And did you notice what the soldiers did? As they get close and they're like, okay, we're going to hop off the ship. Well, the first thing we got to do is kill all the, the prisoners. Because if they escape, if they, if they get to shore and they run away, it's our lives, so we're going to kill them. Wait a minute. Paul said all the lives have been granted to him. And that not one hair would perish. Everybody would get off the ship. And the soldiers say, well, we've got to kill them all. There's this lack of obedience. The sailors go, you know what? Um, we're just going to hop in the boat and go around to the front of the ship. Bye. We're out of here. They're not obeying. So when Paul says these men must stay unless you, or you won't be saved, that's the other part of believing God. It's not just to say, yeah, I exist, but to trust him. To say, Lord, you have told me that these men are mine. They must stay on the ship so that we can all be saved. Believing God is obeying him, or it's not real belief. Believing God is saying, you've told me this, and I believe that to be true. John repeats it twice. John 14, 15, Jesus himself says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. If you believe in me, you may or may not, but if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then 1 John 2, 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. These men must stay on this boat, on this ship. I'm sorry, sailors. They must stay on this ship. If they get off the ship, nobody can be saved. So that's where it goes. He says, not a hair of their head, uh, not a hair on their head is, is going to be perished. They will be saved if they stay. They will hop on into the water and they will swim and not one hair will perish. And those who can't swim will hop into the water and grab something floating past them and they will swim to shore and they will be saved. Paul told them before they'd go on that adventure, eat. You need food. What you're about to do is going to be very hard. Eat. And then we'll go do this. So that, natural, that supernaturalist man says, you know, God could just beam us right to the shore right now, but he hasn't. And so I have to operate on the presumption that we're going to have to get in the water and go. It's going to be hard. You need to eat. God could sustain you through all of that. If he's promised me that you're all saved, don't eat. Let's just hop in the water and see what happens. That's, that's presumption. The natural way to approach it is we're going to hop in the water. You need to eat some food. You need to be strong. You need to be ready to go. Because God has said we're, pro we're, we're saved. And so let's do that. Let's do those things that make sense. And then the last thing that he does in verse 35, he took bread. He gave thanks to God in the presence of all. Now, some of the commentators are wrestling over, was this a Eucharistic meal? Because the word for give thanks is Eucharista, which means give thanks. And so Eucharist, right? So is this the Lord's Supper? No, it's not the Lord's Supper. 
He's not celebrating the Lord's Supper. He's doing what he does, which is he picks up the food that he's got and he thanks God for what he's got. Do you realize where he's at right now? He is in a ship that has been tossed for days, for at least 14 days, across an open sea, battered by storms, surrounded by pagans, and in the middle of it, the, the supernaturalist, the man of God, picks up bread and says, Lord, thank you so much for this. He's able to give thanks in the midst of the storm. He doesn't wait till he gets to the shore and say, okay, now I'll thank you. He is able in the middle of the trouble, in the middle of the difficulties to say, I believe this storm could kill us. And I believe God has promised it won't. And he breaks bread and says, thank you. Thank you, Lord. So the supernaturalist is a believer in God and he does it in the presence of all. He doesn't go hide off in his own cabin and break bread and say, thank you, Lord. And I hope they don't notice. He does it in the presence of everybody. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father and of his holy angels. Paul takes that to heart. I'm a believer. I'm a supernaturalist. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I break bread and I give thanks in front of everybody. And it encourages everyone to see a man of God behaving like a man of God in the midst of trouble and giving thanks in a storm encourages everybody. Now, we don't know if they become believers. Probably not. As a matter of fact, when they get to the island, they don't act like believers. With the story of Jonah, and, and Jonah is hiding and they wind up having to chuck him overboard and they ask Yahweh to forgive them for doing it, then they make vows to Yahweh. It seems like maybe those, so, those sailors became believers, but these folks, by all accounts, probably didn't happen. But the man of God is not worried about that. The man of God stands in the midst and gives thanks to God in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the difficulty. So that is what a travel journal from Luke tells us. It gives us this worldview where we can hold both things together. There is a God and we can sit down and calculate the physics on how to put a, a space capsule in orbit around the moon. And it, and it works because there is a God, because there is a rational core to the universe, because it makes sense. And again, I go back to this and I think Paul did this, or Luke did this in the most straightforward, just as if it was no big deal. We sailed, we got hit by a storm, we dropped sea anchors, and an angel appeared, and then we went to the ground and we... All, all as if it's a matter of fact. That's how we should be approaching life is, yeah, of course. Yeah, we drove and, and we prayed and we found a parking space and it was great. And then it's not a minor thing. This is a supernaturalist worldview. Of course, we're going to call out to God for all of our needs. And we believe that he hears and that he cares. And he could answer in whatever way he knows to be best. He could have stopped the storm. He could have, remember, Philip got kind of transported out into the desert so that he could witness to the Ethiopian eunuch. He could have just transported Paul to Rome. How did you get here? I don't know. It's just, I'm here. He didn't do that. What he did was the best. He did the right thing for the, for the right purpose at the right time. And that, my friends, is a supernaturalist worldview. That's looking at this and saying, this is how it goes. So be encouraged in the storm that you're in. It's not beyond God's control. Be encouraged in the waves crashing into your life. It's not beyond God's control. And you have a promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you are in Christ, you're Abraham's, heir, Abraham's children, heirs according to promise. You have an inheritance coming. 
Jesus said, I will be with you until the end of the age, and then I'll return. We have these promises. We have these hopes. We have these things. So what's next is chapter 28. It's the end of the book of Acts. Can you believe we're at the end of the book of Acts? I feel like we just started. Um, I haven't had a chance to look at it, so I don't know if it's going to be one, two, or three messages. Uh, we'll finish the book of Acts, and then what comes next is we're going to go to the, the narrative portions of Exodus. Um, we finished the book of Genesis, and where we left everybody at in, in the end of Genesis was uh, the tribes of Jacob are now in Egypt. And that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning. So what we'll do is we'll go back to the book of uh, Exodus, and we'll start going through just the narrative portions. Now, we hit a point where it's a long list of laws, and what I'll do is I'll try to summarize law there and kind of get at that. And then we get the, the part where it says, this is how to build the tabernacle, and then it says how they built the tabernacle, and then it says this is what the tabernacle looked like after it was built. We're going to summarize that too. We'll hit the stories. There's a lot of great stories in the book of Exodus. So that's our plan going forward. Um, today, we have a church picnic. So hope to see you all there. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, when I leave today, I will sit in my car. I will put a key in an ignition and turn it, which will close the contacts, which will route power from my battery to a small motor, which will spin and will begin to turn over my engine. And as it turns, spark plugs will fire, fuel will be injected into cylinders, that fuel will explode and push those cylinders down, and eventually the starter motor will let go and the engine will be running on its own because of the, 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 uh, naturally, uh, the explosions that are happening inside of it. And I will put that into gear and gears will mesh with gears and I will drive away. And it's all measurable, it's all calculable, we can figure out all the little details of it, and yet, you are God of all, over all. And, and yet, Lord, you are sovereign. And I will get to the destination I'm going, not simply because of those physical principles, but Lord, because you are God over all. Lord, would you increase our trust in you? Would you show us from things like um, Acts chapter 27 that you are in the midst of our wonderful scientific and technical advances, Lord, you are still God over all. We're simply learning more and more about how you did it, how you do it how you work all things together. And so, Lord, increase our faith, we ask. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.